Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. And I'm Trish. And thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Criminal Discourse Podcast. We are going to start with some listener feedback and shout outs. Yes, Lonnie reached out to us. And thank you, Lonnie, so much. She's been slowly making her way through our episodes. I think she's at the Jeffrey McDonald cases. So she's making good headway. (laughs) But she wanted to know how to leave a review. She's listening to us on Pandora. And we did a little research and found out I don't think you can leave reviews on Pandora, even Google Podcasts. So if you want to leave us a review or do a little write up or again, just kind of introduce yourselves, you know, please feel free to reach out through our website, our contact page, you can write a little something up there and we'll put it on our website. But thank you so much, Lonnie and other listeners that may have tried to and ran into a roadblock there. Yeah, we appreciate knowing that we're telling you to leave reviews where you can't even leave reviews. Right. So if you do want to reach out to us, you can, of course, go to our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes and the resources we use to bring you the episodes because we want to give credit where credit is due. And also, we have our Instagram, criminaldispod, D-I-S-P-O-D, Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, Twitter, at Criminal Pod, and the YouTubes. Oh, yes, you. YouTube. Uh, yeah. But my kids are always on. I have. Yeah. <laughs> We're on there, though. You can find stuff. Yeah. Maybe we'll improve that. How about this? What if you guys tell us where you are in yeah. the social media internet verse and where you want to see more of us? What kind of content you like to see? That would help us, too. So, yes. we, know we want to expand in 2023. We're feeling the expansion vibes and we want to know where you are so we know the right places to go to. Right. So, hit us up. Yeah. And if you are on Pandora Podcast, don't switch. Stay on Pandora, but no, you can't make reviews there. You can't leave stars. But Spotify, Apple Podcasts, a couple others. Amazon. Amazon is one. You can leave stars. You can write a little review. I think the stars are more important as far as increasing our ranking on those apps so that other listeners can see. And then, of course, just sharing the podcast with a friend. Anybody you know who, a coworker, a relative, friends who might be into true crime or it's a local case that they might be interested in. You never know who out there is a fellow true crime junkie. You can have a little discourse of your own. There's a lot of us. (laughs) Today's case. Oh, guys, it's a mass shooting. I'm sorry. It is an interesting case. We have a lot to learn. It's sad. It's fascinating. It's another good criminal discourse podcast case, but it is a mass shooting. These are so common in America. I do want to promise you, though, this is not a trigger warning. This is a relief. We are not going to get into the political side of mass shootings. We are just covering this case. Each case is individual, and we're going to treat this case just the very same. Now, when you do think of a stereotypical school shooter, especially here in America, you probably don't picture Dr. Amy Bishop, a middle-aged mother and biology professor. But in 2010, she executed three of her colleagues at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, where she had recently been denied tenure. Initially, many thought Amy had just snapped, but investigators would discover that she had a history of workplace problems, and this wasn't even the first time that she had killed. So this case technically begins in Braintree, Massachusetts, and we'll get there. That's Amy Bishop's hometown. But we're going to start in the southern United States in Huntsville, Alabama. Huntsville is Alabama's most populous city with about 215,000 residents, and it was about 180,000 when the events of this case took place. The region grew as a weapons research hub after World War II, earning the nickname the Rocket City after it became a hotspot for missile development and NASA research. 
I think, I don't know if it was actually filmed there, but when Tom Hanks and crew were working on the Apollo 13 movie, they at least trained at the the research centers there in Huntsville. UAH, University of Alabama in Huntsville, which I can't say every time, we're going to call it UAH from here on out. That's a public research university that was founded in 1950. And it shares that NASA research and development history with half of its students graduating from its engineering and science programs. Famous UAH alumni include several professional athletes, authors, scientists, and politicians, as well as a NASA astronaut, Jan Davis, a female one at that, hey, and the founder of Discovery Communications, John Hendricks. So the man who brought us Shark Week, Investigation Discovery, the creator. Thank you, John. If Huntsville or UAH make headline news, it's usually because of something related to the Rocket City reputation. But in 2010, it was the site of a tragic mass shooting. On Friday, February 12, 2010, at 3 p.m., 13 colleagues from UAH's biology department gathered for their regular faculty meeting. Staff filed into a small conference room on the Shelby Center Science Building's third floor, most of them sitting around a small rectangular table. 44-year-old biology professor Amy Bishop took a seat in front of the room's only door. As the nearly hour-long meeting was nearing its end, Amy stood suddenly and pulled a handgun from her canvas tote bag. This was a 9mm Ruger P95 semi-automatic pistol loaded with 12 rounds. She aimed it at the 52-year-old biology professor immediately to her right, Dr. Gopi Padilla. Gopi died from a single gunshot wound to his chest leaving behind a wife and two daughters. He had joined the team at UAH as chairman of the biology department in 2002. Gripping the gun in both of her hands, Amy Bishop next shot a 63-year-old staff assistant, Stephanie Monticello, I may be pronouncing that name wrong, who was sitting next to Gopi. Stephanie had time to cover her face with her hands, and that caused Amy's bullet to strike Stephanie's finger before it entered her brain. So it probably saved her life, But the bullet tracked down Stephanie's right cheek and arm and still resulted in severe injuries that forced her to retire early. One of Stephanie's colleagues removed his shirt and used it to apply pressure to the wound as the shooting continued. Stephanie would spend more than six weeks at the hospital recovering, undergoing surgeries and therapies for years afterward. Next, Amy executed the 52-year-old associate biology professor sitting to her left, Dr. Adriel Johnson. Adriel was a beloved faith leader who was deeply involved in his community, along with his wife and two sons. He was born and raised in Alabama and spent his career at UAH. Adriel sat next to 52-year-old associate biology professor Dr. Maria Davis during the meeting, and Amy shot her next. Maria had been at UAH for almost 10 years when Amy killed her, and she was also a breast cancer survivor. One after another, Amy aimed her gun at her colleagues' heads and fired. Survivors remembered that Amy's expression was angry, but her shooting was methodical. Since Amy was blocking the door, everyone had ducked under the table to avoid her bullets. Biology professor Dr. Luis Cruz Vera managed to call 911, but he passed the phone off to someone else after he realized he'd been shot. Fortunately, Luis's physical injuries were minor, and he was actually released from the hospital the next day. 50-year-old biology professor Dr. Joseph Leahy wasn't as fortunate. Joseph's colleagues used small paper napkins to slow the bleeding from his head, an act that he said saved his life. Joseph went blind in his right eye. He spent two months in the hospital, and he needed to have a titanium plate implanted in his forehead, and he actually contracted MRSA from that, Mm. and it was horrible. Brain damage, impaired vision in his other eye, 
and it also impaired his ability to return to his career at full capacity. Then in 2017, he died of a sudden heart attack. So by now, Amy Bishop had fired six of her guns 12 rounds, killing three colleagues and wounding three more. She had six bullets and six targets left in the small conference room. It was then that Deborah Moriarty, Amy's friend and UAH's Dean of Graduate Studies, decided to act. She crawled under the table and grabbed Amy's ankles. Amy backed away and looked down at her friend. Deborah pleaded, Amy, think about my grandson. Think about my daughter. Amy, you know I've helped you. I'll help you again. It's me. It's me. Amy pointed her gun at Deborah and pulled the trigger. Deborah winced as she heard the gun click, but it jammed, sparing her life. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. Woo. Deborah took the opportunity to flee past Amy into an open area outside the conference room, and that caused Amy to follow her. She shot at Deborah a few more times as she was chasing her down the hall with the same results. Gun kept jamming. Deborah raced back to the conference room while Amy was struggling with her jammed weapon. Another colleague shut and locked the door. Then two more colleagues used a coffee table and a small refrigerator to barricade everyone inside. But Amy didn't return to the conference room. She walked to a restroom on the second floor of the building. She threw her gun and jacket away. And then she called her husband, James Anderson, to pick her up. He claims they had a date planned that evening after work, and she was just going to have him pick him up and go to the date. Instead, she was greeted outside by law enforcement. And as she was put in the police car, she told arresting officers, it didn't happen. There's no way. They're still alive. Okay, I'm sure you'll get into this more. I'm just wondering, like, clearly premeditated. Clearly. Did she not think she was going to get caught? Or she's trying to put on an insanity offense? Or she really was in a fugue state where, I don't know, she didn't know what? I don't know. Wow. After researching this case, I'm going to say all three. I think there's stuff in her past that allowed her to believe that she could get away with something like this. I think she had the mental issues that would cause her to maybe black out and do this kind of thing. And yeah, it was def she was very intelligent and this was definitely premeditated. Why the clear motive? I don't know. But I think, yeah, all of those things. Right away, those close to Amy Bishop, I mean, of course, the first thing when there's a shooting, why? Why did this happen? And her colleagues wondered if her motivation for the shooting lay in the fact that UAH had denied her tenure back in April 2009. So if you're in higher education and you are not getting tenure, that means you don't have job security. It's the difference between having a retirement plan or not. The university was concerned about Amy's mental health, complaints from her students, and the lack of research contributions that she was making to her field. She was busy inventing an automated cell incubator since she arrived at the university and too focused on obtaining patents for her work than publishing research. So the university was basically saying, you're using our resources to further your personal goals and you're not really contributing back to the field at large. And that's big, having to publish. I have a friend who's a professor and yeah, to get tenure, you have to publish so many works a year. You have to go to conferences and present workshops or findings. So that's a big part of getting tenure. Amy appealed the decision, but she was rejected again in November 2009, but she continued to battle it. She filed a discrimination complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, citing that an unnamed male professor went on record in a tenure committee meeting saying that he knew Amy was, quote, crazy 
as soon as he met her. That triggered me a little bit. Like being a female, hearing a man saying, oh, she's crazy. That I immediately flew off the handle and took her side. And when the guy was questioned about it afterward, he, he doubled down. He said, quote, I said she was crazy multiple times, and I stand by that. The woman had a pattern of erratic behavior. She did things that were not normal. A professional calling a female colleague crazy in a work meeting is not okay. That's problematic, but he's not totally wrong. (laughs) Had he phrased it in terms of she displays a pattern of erratic behavior, how she deals with things, okay, that's observable, right? Yeah. You don't just say this lady is crazy. (laughs) Her friend Deborah Moriarty said that Amy harassed her about helping appeal the tenure decision. Deborah followed through by meeting with UAH's provost, you know, a high executive admin at the college. She really did try to help Amy out. But after meeting with the provost, Deborah said her conclusion was that procedures had all been followed correctly. There was nothing they could do. Amy's husband, James Anderson, believes her challenges obtaining tenure were a factor in the shooting. He called it for an investigation into the entire academic community, which he called that whole world that no one knows of. Like it's a secret society. He said, we are referring to an isolated group like monks and no one knows what goes on there. I kind of see where he's coming from, but I think it's a little more transparent than he's implying here. Amy's mother says that Amy just snapped after her tenure denial. And other close family members refer to the shooting as the accident in Huntsville. It wasn't an accident. Ooh, no. <laughs> and while Amy's struggles with stress and rejection are valid, they're not unique to professionals in this field. And her peers don't resort to murdering their colleagues to resolve those hurt feelings. So that's important to keep in mind here. And there are three key problems with this tenure vengeance theory. The first being that some of the victims Amy killed actually voted in support of her tenure. It was true that some of Amy's students petitioned to have her removed due to her unsettling ways. But the department head she had just murdered, Dr. Gopi Padilla, was the one who dismissed the student's complaints and defended Amy. And he also voted for her tenure. Do we know what these unsettling ways are? Do they go on to describe that? Yes. So not all of the students felt this way about her, but a large portion of them did. And they would describe things, you know, her going off on personal tangents, cutting classes short, being very aggressive, constantly talking about, you know, you're not as good as the students I knew at Harvard, just being sporadic, insulting, and a little kooky. Amy was also prepared to shoot her friend Deborah, and she had personally appealed to UAH's provost on Amy's behalf. So to me, the idea that we're just getting revenge on people who didn't support me, that doesn't hold up. The people that Amy shot or fired at, were they tenured? I don't know. For I would assume several of them were, but I don't know that all of them necessarily were. I just wondered if it was more of a jealousy thing. I hadn't considered that, Trish. That's a good point to make. Jealous that they get to see. I know they all were going to be. She would have to leave at the end of that school year in the spring, and they would all be staying for the next year. Even though she didn't get tenure, she could still keep her job technically, but she wouldn't be a tenured professor. Or was it if you didn't reach tenure by a certain point, you were dismissed? I think so. The way that everybody speaks about it is, like Deborah said, she was confused why Amy was even at the meeting because they were talking about plans that were affecting the fall semester and everyone knew that Amy wasn't going to be there anyway. 
Another problem with this tenure vengeance theory is that Amy continued to offer her own conflicting theories about her motive. In a 2014 appeal, she accused her attorney of failing to mention a student stalker that I don't think this had ever come up before 2014. And this supposed stalker was the reason why Amy brought a gun to work in the first place. But she didn't explain how that fear translated into her opening fire on faculty members. So who knows? Finally, there is the fact that Amy being denied tenure wasn't necessarily going to be financially ruinous for her. That incubator invention she had been working on was a success, and her patents promised future recurring income that could replace her salary. She had a full year to find a new job while she was still getting her salary at UAH, and her husband said that there were three other universities talking to her about a new position. So she had prospects. Now, investigators turned up a criminal past as they continued searching for a motive to this crime. Back in 2002, on a Sunday in March, about a year before UAH hired her, Amy Bishop had been charged with assault. Amy, her husband, and their four children had gone to an IHOP for breakfast, and Amy requested a booster seat for her youngest child, who was about a year old. The last one had just been given to another family, and instead of accepting this or going to another restaurant, Amy approached the other mother and her children. She, quote, launched into an expletive-laced rant, shrieking, I am Dr. Amy Bishop, repeatedly. Manager told her to leave, and she said she would, but only after she went back to the mother and punched her in the head. I don't know why, but charges were dropped. So, there's one. Various neighbors and former colleagues came forward after the shooting to share their own altercations with Amy. In particular, the police and Amy's neighbors in Ipswich, Massachusetts, recalled multiple incidents when she lived there from 1998 until 2003 when she moved to Huntsville. Amy called the police four times in those five years with noise complaints, one time telling them that it was about to, quote, come to blows with kids who were playing basketball in a public area near her home. And when I say come to blows, she meant she was about to go out and assault these kids. And the police told her, do not confront them, call their parents. She would call her neighbors directly to complain about their noise. And she even complained so much about the ice cream truck that it stopped visiting her street. So she's the lady who got the ice cream truck to stop coming to the neighborhood. In 1999, she reported two of her daughters missing because they didn't call her before they left the house. How old were they? At this point, they would have been or her oldest would have been about like eight years old. But it's not like they're going out to the They just they weren't in the home. So she called. They weren't they didn't pick up. They hadn't caught. And she would say it's a normal procedure that before they leave, like they would call me and they didn't. So instead of investigating, she called 911. Back in December 1993, Dr. Paul Rosenberg, Amy's supervisor at the Boston Children's Hospital's Neurobiology Lab, received two six-inch pipe bombs in the mail. Fortunately, he was suspicious. He opened the packages carefully, and that prevented the detonation. Although they have since been cleared, Amy and her husband Jim were immediate suspects because Amy had recently resigned just that December after Paul had given her a negative evaluation. He wrote that Amy was, quote, on the verge of a nervous breakdown and could not meet the standards for work. Witness interviews corroborated Paul's claims that Amy, quote, exhibited violent behavior and was not stable. So immediately after this evaluation, he got pipe bombs in the mail. They did find receipts for materials that could be used in pipe bombs that they never recovered from the bishop's home. There were some things, but ultimately they were clear they were never charged with this. This remains unsolved. But I think the other thing that stands out to me is this. She had a job review saying that she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown 
and was not stable. I didn't see anything about her being offered therapy or help or anybody in her life supporting her. Just, no, she's not. You're wrong and you're fired kind of thing. Well, she didn't get fired. She resigned. She got a negative review and she resigned and then possibly allegedly made pot bombs. Yeah. So she also didn't take care of herself. One witness in the pipe bombing investigation said that Amy's husband was actually the one who plotted violent revenge against this boss, Paul Rosenberg. The witness's identity has never been released, and Jim Anderson, her husband, completely denies this claim. Despite this documented performance evaluation, Jim says the only reason Amy had to leave was because the lab ran out of money to fund her project. So that's their story, and they're sticking to that. Jim has always defended his wife against criticism. A close friend of the couple, I don't know how close friends they are to say this about her, but she claims that Amy is a narcissist. And whenever she would get angry, Jim fanned the flames as a way to control her. So if you know someone like this, this is, you know, they get angry, they rage out about something and Jim would just, yes, that's very upsetting. What about this? Kind of get her going so that you reach a boiling point where you can't control your feelings and then he could kind of direct her, I think is, is the way that they're describing this. The two had met through their college's Dungeons and Dragons group and married in 1989. They had their first child in 1991 and Amy earned her PhD from Harvard in 1993. I cannot imagine. That's impressive. <laughs> trying to get a PhD when I have a baby. The couple ended up having four children between 1991 and 2001. When Amy accepted the job at UAH in 2003, her youngest child was barely a toddler. So she's inventing, she's inventing things and she has a toddler. She was the family's breadwinner and experienced the added stress of balancing motherhood with an extremely demanding career. Somehow, Amy also found the time to write three novels, entire novels, which are still unpublished. And all, listen, all I have to say here, I don't know Jim Anderson. I didn't research him heavily, but what, where are you? What are you doing? How are you helping this woman? She's is doing everything. Working? Or is he home taking care of the kids while she works? I, the only things I have read about him during this time period described him having a hard time keeping a job. So she was financially supporting them. I don't know that he was necessarily helpful at home. He was not a stay-at-home dad. But it seemed the way she talked to the friends she did have and family, she was high strung. She was stressed. Like she was trying. All of her kids were musicians and scientists kind of like her. Mm -hmm. So constant activities, so many things going on. And it seemed like she was always the one taking them to music lessons, going to, the, you know, she was the stage mother when her kids were doing plays at school, very involved. And that's just a lot for one person. Ooh, I can, I can barely do my life. Jeez. Okay. One week before the shooting, Jim and Amy went to a shooting range. Amy practiced firing the nine millimeter pistol that she would use to terrorize and murder her colleagues a few days later. A friend of Jim's had gifted it to him back in the late 1990s. Immediately after the shooting, Jim denied that the family owned a gun at all. That doesn't go anywhere, by the way. Jim has never gotten in trouble for any of this, but I just think my personal opinion, I don't, I don't need Jim Anderson coming for me, but I think there's a little bit more to that. Amy's history of violence and run-ins with the law go all the way back to her hometown of Braintree, Massachusetts. Braintree is about 20 minutes south of Boston in Norfolk County with a population of almost 40,000 today. And that's about the same as it was back in the late 60s when Amy's family moved there. Now, Amy's family's originally from the New England, Massachusetts area, but they had moved to Iowa for a little bit because her dad is a professor and he took a job out there. Braintree is the birthplace of John Adams, America's second president, his wife, Abigail, and their son, America's sixth president, John Quincy Adams, notorious signatory John Hancock, 
as well as Mark Wahlberg and Donnie Ooh, Wahlberg <laughs> are among Braintree's famous former residents. So founding fathers plus new kids on the block are from Braintree. Amy was born on April 24, 1965 in Iowa City, Iowa, again, because her father was teaching out there. They returned to Braintree when she was three years old because her father, Sam, took a position in the art department of Boston's Northeastern University. Her parents were both academics and artists. Her younger brother, Seth, musician and scientist, just like Amy, was born shortly after the move. Amy was a severely allergic and asthmatic child who loved music and science. And it it talks about how as she was recovering from these different ailments she had, that that kind of fueled her interest in science. She had a lot of alone time. She was described as empathetic, but also a loner, bright, but competitive, extremely intelligent child. After the Bishop's home was robbed in 1985, Amy's father purchased a 12-gauge shotgun for protection. On Saturday, December 6, 1986, 21-year-old Amy and her father engaged in a heated argument. Although the topic and intensity of the fight and whether it ever happened at all has evolved over the years. So when I say that, what I mean is every family member over time has said the topic of the fight. They've had varying opinions on that. There's a neighbor who said she was supposed to have tea with Amy's mom that day. And Amy's mom called her and canceled because of the fight. But today, Amy's mom said there was never a fight. That woman's a liar. So take it with a grain of salt. But what we do know is that After this fight, which did or didn't happen, Amy was alone in the house for several hours. Her father had gone Christmas shopping, her 18-year-old brother Seth went to the grocery store, and her mother Judy was working at the horse stable. I don't know if it was theirs or a neighbor's, but stables. Amy would later tell police that as she was home alone, she started to worry about robbers, and she loaded the shotgun to feel safer. But she realized she didn't know how to unload the shotgun, and so she tried and accidentally shot her bedroom mirror. Judy returned home first, although the time that she returned is debatable. That has also changed over time. And then Seth came home with the groceries. So Amy says that she heard Seth come home and she ran downstairs to the kitchen to ask him for help unloading this gun. But when she turned toward him, the shotgun accidentally fired. Now, this is it's a small kitchen. Her family thinks... You know, she she banged a cabinet or something like that. A ballistics expert said you need to have five pounds of pressure on the trigger in order for it to go off. So Judy, their mother, said she saw the whole thing happen. And it was exactly as Amy stated, that it was an accident. So she killed her brother. She killed her brother. He collapsed. And Judy said at that point, Amy just fled the house with the shotgun. After Amy murdered her colleagues in Huntsville, Judy, her mom, commented that her daughter shared her father's temper. And some close to the family believe that Amy had spent her time alone stewing over that explosive argument she had with her father that morning and that she had actually intended to shoot him instead or that it was just I want to intimidate him. I want to show him that I'm serious, that I, yeah, I'm really mad. And a close friend said, quote, I've never asked Sam and Judy what happened in the house that day because I don't want them to lie to me. And you know what? To protect my kids, I'd lie too. I'd lie on a stack of Bibles. So Judy told police that Amy ran with the shotgun from their home after shooting Seth. And then she ended up in a nearby car dealership that was closed and deserted, except for some off-duty mechanics who kind of hung out there on the weekends. Shotgun in hand, Amy demanded that the mechanic give her the keys to a car. The mechanics fled, but Amy stayed at the dealership, and she was there when police caught up with her. She hid behind a car and pointed the shotgun at an officer who said she looked frightened and disoriented. 
Another officer approached her from behind and Amy complied with his commands to drop her weapon and then she was arrested. Amy was released into her parents' custody the same night. Remember, she's 21 years old. And although memories and opinions on the reason why differ, most everyone points the finger at police chief John Polio, saying he gave the orders to release her and drop murder charges. So the story within Braintree's police ranks, and some of these officers did testify in court about this later. It goes that Judy Bishop arrived at the station and demanded to speak with John. Judy was an active and influential community member who was, quote, a big supporter of his. And they say that John was using Judy's influence to advance his personal goals. So changing the retirement age for the police chief, things like that. He would work through Judy to get these things to happen. The lieutenant interrogating Amy remembered how Judy entered the room and everything came to an abrupt halt. The polios and the bishops adamantly deny that any such cover-up occurred. They say it's ridiculous. In 2010, when the case was re-examined, John Polio defended Braintree Police's handling of the case. The mother was saying her version of how it happened and her version was that it was an accident. I didn't tell anybody to release her, is what he said. Then how did she get released? How did she get released? (laughs) He didn't answer that. Judy believes the officers, quote, were out to find some way to nail polio and claims they exaggerated her role in the community. And she, this is what she insists. I was there. I saw it happen. Changed my life. I was there. Seth Bishop's death was ultimately ruled an accident. Massachusetts State Trooper Brian Howe failed to include Amy's standoff with police in his final report. Why? Norfolk County's district attorney at the time, Bill Delahunt, said that he would have filed assault charges against Amy if he had known that she brandished a weapon at the officer. So regardless of Seth, he would have still charged her with that. Brian Howe said he didn't know about the standoff either because Braintree police didn't turn their original reports over to him. So the police never told the state trooper who filed the final report about the standoff that potentially could have come from polio as well. Bill Delahunt, the district attorney, also blames police chief John Polio, saying, like you did, Trish, they would have never released Amy without his orders. They would have been afraid to. That's pretty. You wouldn't have released her unless he said so. Accidental or not, she shot her brother. Mm -hmm. She fled the scene. Then she threatened mechanics and (laughs) and then brandished a weapon to police. Mm hmm. And the lieutenant who interrogated her and was writing his initial charges as he was questioning her had claims he had written murder and assault with a dangerous weapon on the paper and he had to change it. The biggest point here, though, is, and this is true, nobody cared about this. Nobody investigated this until 2010 when she shot people in Huntsville. So it just went away. Days after she shot Seth, the local paper ran a story about it, and it was just, it didn't even mention that, you know, Amy was interrogated, anything about the gas station. It was just this horrible accident. And Amy told the paper a story of how Seth saved her life when they were children, but it's kind of weird because he would have only been four years old. They were like climbing a cliff. It was bizarre. She described him as a calm, giving, funny brother who was always there for me. The interrogating officer said that Amy was, quote, in a highly emotional state that made it impossible to question her after she was arrested. She experienced severe depression, sleeping in her parents' bed for months, and rarely leaving their house. The family continued to live in the home for years, which, I mean, that was in the kitchen. So they're eating dinner, cooking food in the kitchen where she shot him. Amy's parents were not supportive of therapy, and Amy really wasn't either. She said she didn't want to deal with her terrible feelings. Amy later said that she attempted suicide 
around this time tried to cut her wrists, but her mother insists that it was a pumpkin carving accident. On June 16, 2010, four months after the mass shooting at UAH, a Massachusetts grand jury indicted Amy in the first-degree murder of her brother. Two days later, she attempted suicide for the second time, and she was nearly successful, but a guard caught her in time. With no physical evidence remaining in the case, they destroyed most of it. Many witnesses who were elderly or deceased, and no clear evidence pointing to a motive, the case against Amy Bishop was hard to prove. I mean, the only witness supposedly was the mom, and she was going to work for the defense. Do you think the motive could have been back to jealousy? What Mm. was Seth's relationship like with his parents? I mean, here he's grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. Is he the good child that, I'll go get the groceries, you go to the stables, dad, you do your Christmas shopping? I mean, he was the younger. Why wasn't Amy grocery shopping or going with him to Mm -hmm. grocery shop? Left alone. What was the argument about? Was it over, you're not doing anything to Mm. help this family or this household? Total speculation, but I'm just saying, was jealousy a motive? Mm -hmm. We will never know, I think. Once she was sentenced for the shooting at UAH, Massachusetts dropped all of these charges and said that she was going to be in prison where she belonged anyway. So they dropped it. Now, after her arrest in February 2010, Amy Bishop's attorney, Roy Miller, I mean, he could only fight for an insanity defense and negotiating to remove the death penalty. There was no doubt that she did this. Roy pointed to Amy's violent past as support of an insanity defense. And he's quoted as saying, something is wrong with this lady. Her history speaks for itself. Did they have a court-ordered psychiatric examination? They did. Nothing conclusive came of it. And this is, this stood out to me. One of the reasons why they had such a hard time proving an insanity defense. Amy Bishop says that she was found to be schizophrenic through these evaluations. That is not true. They found some symptoms that were schizoid-ish, but she did not have a diagnosable schizophrenia condition. One of the things they kept mentioning is she has never gone to therapy. She has never gotten a diagnosis. She has never been medicated. So this is where, again, I'm looking at this in retrospect, thinking about our current lives. And if she had gotten help when she was younger, when that happened and she had gone to therapy, that could have, I mean, we don't want to help killers, but that could have helped her case today. Or maybe even avoided. Avoided would be the better option. (laughs) But it's the fact that she had never gotten treatment before when she clearly had problems was part of the issue. In September 2012, Amy Bishop pleaded guilty to one count of capital murder. I don't know why it wasn't three. I could not find that. And three counts of attempted murder in exchange for being spared the death penalty. Now, I will say, too, there were several lawsuits from survivors, the families of the victims who were killed against Amy, against the school for not doing their due diligence and hiring Amy for not taking it more seriously when she was raging out about this tenure denial and allowing her to continue to return to the school. Justice was delivered in many, many ways. But Amy was sentenced to life without parole for capital murder, and she was given three more life sentences for the attempted murders, all to be served consecutively. That's a heck of a sentence. Amy unsuccessfully appealed her sentence in 2014 and 2013. But you you pled guilty, so. Amy wrote her 40-page 2014 appeal by hand. Woo! <laughs> in the court's attempt to summarize Amy's complaints, now this is savage, they note that her document, quote, at first appears to use particular headings and subheadings, but quickly devolves into a format void of any further guidance for the reader as the petition jumps back and forth to different claims and issues. Each and every one of Amy's claims is nothing more than a desperate attempt to unravel the web which she has woven for herself. Burn. <laughs> 
today, Amy Bishop says that, quote, the worst thing about prison is being separated from my children. So the oldest of her children turns 32 this year. Amy's youngest child and only son, Seth, who she named after her brother, died on April 19th, 2021 at just 20 years old. So only two years older than her brother was when she shot him. How did he die? Do we know that? Oh, yes, we do. In August 2022, 19-year-old Vincent Harmon was indicted on a reckless murder charge downgraded from manslaughter for shooting and killing Seth. So potentially very similar in a way to how her brother died. The case was supposed to go to trial in November of 2022, but I don't think it did. I can't find any other details. It's still ongoing. So we'll follow up with that as, as things continue. Before his death in 2017, UAH shooting survivor Dr. Joseph Leahy said the event was kind of a big nothing to him since he had no memory of it. So that was one of the things he lost was his short-term memory. Stephanie Monticello, still don't think I'm pronouncing her name right. I'm so sorry. On the other hand, she spoke openly about her journey recovering from post-traumatic stress disorder in addition to the physical injuries that led to her early retirement. And I'm sure she is not the only one who had to deal with trauma from this. UAH's biology department formally prioritized student mentoring as a way to honor the shooting victims because that was something that was important to those people while they were still teachers there. And Deborah Moriarty, who obviously many consider a hero because she risked her life to stop Amy that day, said that honoring her lost colleagues is a balancing act. Quote, you don't want to forget the people, but you don't want to memorialize the act that took them from you. That's, I think, one of the things that we struggle with, where it's it's important to remember what happened and try to understand why these things occurred, but not to, especially in the case of school shootings, going back to reliving when Columbine happened, not to glorify the people who did it or the horrible details of the crime, but really to try to get an understanding of how we can prevent this. And when I look at Amy Bishop, I think, man, if people had just, what if it was an accident with Seth, her brother? And if people had just talked to her, she had gotten the therapy and it wasn't just, no, it was an accident. No, you didn't do this. No, it was a pumpkin carving accident. You didn't try to kill yourself. But I think when when an 18-year-old shoots up their school, we look at the mom and dad and say, why did you ignore the signs? Why didn't you do this? She was 44, Amy Bishop, when she shot at her colleagues. But I can go back and I can see that this trauma from her younger years and these incidents that happened in her home, her childhood home, I think they had an impact on what happened later in her life. Were there any other children at home? Didn't she have more than one? It was just the just her and Seth. Yeah. And And it's, you know, then you think about her children and what they go through. It just a ripple effect. It is a ripple effect before. Has she gotten any therapy while in prison? I don't think so. There is an episode of Deadly Women that she is featured in. I don't list it here because not that it's not good. I love Deadly Women, but <laughs> I don't think you're going to gain any any kind of new information from it. And it doesn't a lot of things go back to, well, you know, we should have seen that she was a killer because she killed her brother. I just don't think it's that black and white. I think this is very complicated. She was highly intelligent. She was dealing with a lot of mental health and emotional issues. But she also didn't want to deal with it. I mean, she is a highly intelligent adult. She could have been like, you know what, I think I need some therapy to deal with some things in my past. Well, she was so with her parents, at least her mother, she was surrounded by people who taught her how to ignore and deny. And then if these other people are to be believed from her adult life, her husband 
fan the flames of these things. So this is where it comes back to you are responsible for your actions. You have to have self-awareness. But if you see people like this, I mean, you're not responsible for other people. But, you know, I would just hope that other people at some point might have like Deborah Moriarty, you know, she saw that she tried. She couldn't prevent anything that happened. But you know, I at least have to give her credit for stepping in and recognizing that Amy was someone who was hurting and needed companionship and needed help and support and not just rejection and dismissal. Yeah, it's a lot easier to just say, oh, this woman's crazy, get her out of here, than to deal with whatever and, and help her overcome her own resistance to healing. And we don't know, not knowing how the University of Alabama Huntsville operates in terms of when it was denied initially to say, listen, you can reapply, but you need to do X, Y, and Z before you reapply. There's a pathway for you, but there's things you have to do. I don't know if that was done or it's done precursor to that. Like, I think when you're on the tenure track, you have a professor you have to meet with, kind of a mentor that tells you, okay, this is what you need to be doing. What are you doing? Let's review what you're doing. So maybe she had that and disregarded that information. And if so, well, you didn't get tenure. It does seem like that was the case, too. She was arrogant. She felt like writing the papers was not a good use of her. T- Again, highly intelligent people, very stubborn. This is not a good use of my time. This is what I want to do. That's what they're telling me. But who are they? To- I'm the one with the Harvard degree. So right. <laughs> I'm Dr. Amy Bishop. So this was our second doctor episode in February here. Ooh, doctor kick. Listen, not not all doctors are good. Some of them rape and kill lessons. But the majority are. The majority are good. But this just, it, you know, not all school shooters are loner teenage boys who play violent video games all night. It's all individual. We can't. And this this just points out to me too the dangerousness of making assumptions to try to correct and prevent crime. You cannot make. There's patterns. Yes. There's commonalities. Yes. But you still have to treat each case individually mm-hmm. because it is. There we go. My soapbox. The end. No more mass shootings for a while. Probably no more doctors for a while, guys. Maybe. (laughs) All right. Well, everybody, if you've enjoyed that episode, which we hope you have, let us know. Like I said, reach out to us on our website or any of our social media platforms. And as always, if you see something, say something. And I think Wendy just went through, you know, there were plenty warning signs with Dr. Amy Bishop. And not to say that they didn't confront her on them, not to say they did. Some people didn't try, you know, see something, say something. Or it's probably easier to ignore when it's a woman, too. Well, that's true. And a an, an highly intelligent professional woman at that. So you might have that missing piece of puzzle it takes to solve a crime because after the fact, like we find out from her hometown, that there were pieces that fit this puzzle, that this behavior that she exhibited might not have been the first time she exhibited it. And if that was followed through back then, maybe could have been avoided in the future, but we'll never know. So till next time, guys, we want you to be safe out there, but we also need to remember we need to be kind to one another too. So until next time. Bye. Bye.